Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein for another conversation we have with us today, Martha Bayless. Martha is a senior lecturer in humanities at Boston College. She's a columnist for the Claremont Review of Books and the American Interest, and for many years, she was the TV and arts critic at the Wall Street Journal. She has two important books to her name. One is called Hole in Our Soul, The Loss of Beauty and Meaning in American Popular Music, and Through a Screen Darkly, Popular Culture, Public Diplomacy, and America's Public Image Abroad. Our primary topic today is an essay in the latest issue of the Claremont Review entitled A Tale of Two Markets. Uh, first, though, welcome, Martha. I'm glad to be here. Well, just to introduce you to our listeners, will you give the broad thesis of your two books, uh, Hole in Our Soul and the Public Diplomacy book, Through a Screen Darkly? Okay. You're not suggesting that all those years of work can be boiled down to a 30-second soundbite, are you? Uh, can you do it in 140 characters? <laughs> yeah. um, Hole in Our Soul is a critical history of American popular music by which I define that very broadly to mean basically any kind of music that had a kind of commercial popular appeal, beginning with ragtime and ending with uh, rap. And it has, it's, a, it's kind of a history, it's organized chronologically, and it also has an argument, something of an in-your-face argument, that our popular music, which began with a whole set of values and performance aspects and musical aspects that grew out of what I call the Afro-American idiom, which I define carefully as the style of music largely created by black Americans, but certainly not exclusively by black Americans, that came to be the American musical idiom all across the board, from Broadway music to, you know, hard rock to uh, funk to all sorts of things. Jazz, of course, soul. But it wouldn't be just jazz, but it would be, you know, Broadway, the American songbook, those as well? Yeah. Anything that has that peculiar and original mixture of uh, kind of infectious rhythm uh, with all sorts of harmonic and melodic resources taken from the Western musical tradition and from other traditions. It's a very syncretic, synthetic mode of music. And I, I'm drawing on uh, the great American uh, music critic Henry Pleasance who uh, was a classical music critic and then discovered jazz uh, late in his career. He also had a long career as an intelligence officer for the CIA, but that's another story. <clears throat> Very interesting man. Um, and he calls it the Afro-American idiom. And he just says that this is the idiom of the 20th century. The idiom of the 19th century was German-Austrian. The idiom before that was Italian, you know. It's just the sort of dominant musical language, and he defines it very well. So I basically stole my definition from him as a musical idiom. It's, it's a broad but meaningful classification. So that's a long way of saying that's where we started with our music. And it's a tale of decline, yeah? And it's a tale, yeah. And I, I trace the decline along two different axes. The first is a kind of weird, overblown... Uh, fantasy about what uh, African Americans are all about, uh, which kind of takes the music as um, to take the oldest prejudice, you know, the idea that it's some kind of crude jungle music, that it's, you know, all about sex, not civilized, that it's the music of savages. This is the way 
jazz was talked about in the early days. And we had another round of it later on when rock and roll uh, was, the, the N-word was used to describe rock and roll. And it's it's basically a kind of aversion to the rhythmic element in the music and the expressive element in the music by people who see those as kind of primitive musical aspects. That is, you know, I think belongs in the dustbin of history. But there were a lot of people who embraced it for that reason, particularly in the 20s and then again in the 60s. There were a lot of people who thought, oh, this is why we like the music. And my argument is that, that that led to a kind of degradation of the music because people began to play what they thought they were hearing. And here you, I would put the blame on a lot of white musicians in rock and so forth. And then along comes rap. And rap to me is, you know, I call this primitivism. And rap is a kind of primitivism practiced by black and white performers, which I think is a degradation, certainly a diminution of the original uh, idiom. The my sense of rap is that the register uh, covers the alphabet, the emotional register of rap covers the alphabet all the way from A to B. Sure, and it's it's also musically, it basically has done away with harmony and melody, leaving only rhythm and speech. Now you can do great things with rhythm and speech, but it's, it's missing uh, a couple of limbs, if you're gonna call it music. So. You know, I like some rap, very little rap, actually, but I I have a pretty hard-hitting chapter on that, which made me, as you can imagine, very popular. All right, so hole in, hole, hole in your soul, hole in our soul. Hole in our soul. Hole in our soul. Uh, okay, and, and the public diplomacy book? Um, that was published by Yale in 2014. It's, uh, well, when 9-11 happened and uh, President Bush said, why do they hate us? I, being immersed in popular culture, I looked around and said, gee, does it have something to do with the way our popular culture is these days? And the fact that it is spread all over the world in all sorts of places, and everybody thinks that this is a good thing. Um, But is it a good thing? Maybe it's a good thing and a bad thing. The first half of the book is about the export of commercial popular culture. And the second half is about all the things the government has done to try to uphold, refurbish America's reputation in the world. I really do not like the term soft power, uh, so I kind of avoid that. So I talk a lot about reputation and image of the United States and and of the people of the United States. When the U.S. started doing the the cultural export, that the government did a lot of programs in the, I guess, in the 50s and after, things like sending Dizzy Gillespie's band over to Africa. He had a big band for a while. Over to Africa to play and to present. This is this is what American American culture is is all about. And Dizzy Gillespie was a great great musician. So we were exporting really really good stuff. The American art, American music, good American music, good American literature. But that when the Cold War ended. The government gave up on that, on doing that and sort of turned the export of American life, American society over to Levi's and McDonald's. Is that right? Well, over to Hollywood and over to the, the entertainment industry. I mean, I, th- I don't think, you know, blue jeans were popular all along. It's, lot, <laughs> it's, not, it's not strictly consumerism. It is culture. It is our, what I like to call popular culture, but now... I sometimes call entertainment because I think I think less of it than I used to. 
That's going to get us into your into your essay in, in a few minutes, but go ahead. Go ahead. The, the starting point for that book was the loss of public diplomacy, including the cultural side of it, but public diplomacy involves a number of other activities as well, uh, all of which were cut, educational exchanges, um, broadcasting, Voice of America, and those kinds of things, which still exist but in, in reduced form, and all those kinds of efforts to communicate with foreign publics um, you know, in a, to sort of keep up a, an alternative image of America next to what the entertainment industry was saying. And, you know, do you trust the government to do that? Well, they mangled it quite a lot, but there were a lot of people, and I met them, who had done it throughout the Cold War and were pretty damn good at it. And I have a lot of regard for those people. I interviewed a ton of them. They sent, they sent Dave Brubeck around, too, didn't they? Oh, Benny Goodman, Dave Brubeck, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. I interviewed the man who 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 accompanied the Duke Ellington Orchestra across Central Asia <laughs> and to Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, these these jazz tours. They actually most of them happened in the early '60s when jazz was old hat in the United States. But anyway, there there were a number of things. The jazz things are the best known, but there were tons of other things that happened. Most of them by USIA who were, were, had branches everywhere in the world, and USIA people, U.S. Information Agency, they knew the local scene, and they kind of knew what would work in the local scene. And so a lot of the successes were very kind of regional and local. So you have to go on for quite a while to talk about how it was successful. I won't do that. Well, to get up to the present, that, that's a very good lead-in to the opening paragraph of your essay in Claremont that I'm going to read on, on the air. This is, this is a tale of two markets uh, in the Claremont Review in, in this issue. What on earth has happened to the movies? Why is it so hard to find a compelling human drama, a genuinely amusing comedy, or even a clever and visually pleasing animated feature in a theater nowadays? When did the big screen get taken over by comic books and video games? Who brainwashed Hollywood into churning out endless wannabe blockbusters about superheroes blasting away at supervillains? Why are these multi-million dollar special effects in these movies so cheesy that even this non-gamer wishes she had a joystick, gamepad, or light gun just to keep from nodding off? Uh, uh, what happened? What did happen? Uh, there's, a, there's a combination of things that almost never get talked about in conjunction with each other. Uh, some of them are cultural. Some of them are business, structural, economic things that change the industry. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between a cultural change and a, and a change in the structure of the industry. There were legal changes in terms of regulation of media, you know, court cases that struck down various kinds of controls. And there was uh, finally the point that I get to in this essay. There's a little bit of a potted history that follows that opening you read. I get to China. Mm -hmm. well, what's the problem with China? problem with China is that <clears throat> very early on, uh, really starting in the, in the 80s, uh, when it was, China was extending its television system to, the, to its entire territory, they imported a huge number, well not a huge number, but a fair number of American TV shows because they needed content and they wanted to attract people to this new medium. There were a lot of places in China that didn't have TV. And of course, this was the 80s were a pretty open time in China. That's when there was a lot of ferment. People were suddenly 
getting access to things outside China. The economy was beginning to to hum along thanks to the changes uh, Deng Xiaoping had put in. And in came uh, some American popular culture. I can't tell you how many people I met in China who grew up watching the Brady Bunch. Yeah, I saw that reference in your essay, yes. The Brady Bunch. I grew up with the Brady Bunch. Either subtitled or dubbed in English, in Chinese, in Mandarin. I'm not sure whether it was subtitled or dubbed. But, you know, suddenly the American, American popular culture began to sort of attract people in China, as it had done in lots of other places. I don't want to suggest that American popular culture is all bad, or that it attracts people for bad reasons. I never said that. If if I thought that, I wouldn't have written in two entire books about it because it would have been too depressing. I think a lot of it is wonderful. But this this process in China um, can be traced. You know, it's it's a bit complicated. But <clears throat> over time, the Chinese market became more and more important, uh, particularly to the film industry, to Hollywood. Because uh, over time, Hollywood lobbied, the Motion Picture Association lobbied very, very hard to uh, change the the quota. China has always had a quota, the number of foreign films it will admit. And Hollywood has lobbied over the years to increase that quota. And as I think most of your listeners will know quite well, Hollywood has also compromised uh, with the Chinese uh, censors to get their films in there. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. And it's a huge market, right? I mean, is this sometimes the difference? The Chinese market is the difference for producers uh, between uh, a flop, a commercial flop, and a commercial success. Oh, yes. Well, nowadays, <clears throat> I think the Chinese market, you could argue, is... Well, I wouldn't say it was more important than the American market, but the two are sort of joined at the hip. <clears throat> the trick is to find something that will succeed in both markets. Is it true, as someone told me, that when, when I said that scripts seem to be getting so simplistic, the language is, is so blunt and unlayered, and he said, well, one thing is these... These scripts have to be easily translatable and understandable to a Chinese audience. Well, sure. And that's, you know, that's, a, that's kind of an old story. It's not just a Chinese audience. There are lots of things that you and I might think are terrific American films, although we've been known to argue about these things, that, you know, are very, they're, they're comprehensible to Europeans, they're comprehensible to British. The further away you get from the United States the less comprehensible they become. There's always going to be a contingent of young people in almost every country who are immersed in American culture and, and can, can comprehend it pretty well. But the vast majority of people that make up a market, um, a lot of them, there's only so much <clears throat> about American culture that they can absorb at one time. And so, yeah, there's a lot of tweaking that goes on and, and and Hollywood has been very mindful of its global market for some time now. It's been it's been years that it's been the the overseas market has been between a third and a half of Hollywood's revenue. That's not a big news. But China has become more and more important lately for all sorts of reasons. And and you, you talk about creating these uh, uh dependable, risk fee risk free formulaic films that are just guaranteeing uh a return. And that the only substantive alternative in the United States, at least, to 
Hollywood alternative to the the superhero, you know, superficial film is what you call the cult of darkness. What's the cult of darkness? That's that's more of a cultural phenomenon than a than a market or an economic phenomenon. It's just, I mean, and this is drawing on my work on Hole in Our Soul, uh, going back to perverse modernism and this whole idea that art is supposed to shock or bring out the shocking, bring out the negative. <clears throat> this is an old story in Western, in Western arts, <clears throat> and it's become very much part of our popular culture that, you know, it's not just enough to avoid sweetness and light. You have to sort of focus on the sour, the bitter, and the dark to the exclusion of anything positive. And there's, it's, it's almost like a, 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 an orthodoxy. <clears throat> you can't... I'm trying to think of a, of a good example. I mean, the, the treatment of sex, you know, you have to show sex as a very um, kind of rough, harsh... Uh, sudden phenomenons activity um, you have to show that it that uh, there's not you know it's better when there's no love it's better when people don't even know each other it's always very sudden and very you know rough and there's also I mean there's the sex and the violence I could go on about those but I'm sure your readers your listeners know all about sex and violence in American entertainment and some of them may not even mind it that much I would point to a third thing which is the portrayal of American institutions, uh, political institutions, economic institutions. I could talk about religious institutions, but they're not portrayed in American entertainment. <laughs> One of the things that people say from other countries when they come here to visit, and I've heard this from dozens and dozens of people in the State Department, is they say, I had no idea Americans were so religious because we never see that. It's extremely rare to see ordinary religious observ observances the way most Americans or those Americans who still observe religion, practice religion. It's just completely erased. Well, well one thing you note is that if you're looking at a Chinese market, they, they consume the films, and some of them are these, these darker films, but they draw a conclusion about American society. And you say here uh, that it supports the official Chinese view of America as a civilization in decline. Well, I was half joking because I don't think Joker is being shown in China. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was the specific film you were talking about there. Yeah. I'm sure Joker didn't make it into China. But I was being ironic and saying, you know, if maybe they should let it in because it certainly would uh, confirm the image of America that, that the propaganda and thought department of the Communist Party in China are trying to promote. And But a lot of things that do get in, I think, do in a way promote <clears throat> those negative stereotypes. And here's another one. I, I mentioned institutions. There's another one that you don't automatically think of, and that is the portrayal of, and this is a huge one, the portrayal of family. Particularly fathers, right? Yeah, fathers and of marriage and of relations between older people, younger people, children. All of that which Americans live every single day of our lives is so distorted in our entertainment. I didn't even realize that until I traveled around the world doing interviews in 11 different countries. 
And just about every country I visited, no matter what their own religious traditions were, or lack thereof, they would say to me, Americans are always alone. Americans don't have grandparents. Americans are all young. Americans don't get married. Americans all live alone, and so forth. And I'd say, well, that's not actually true. (laughs) I mean, it's true enough in the sense that we have a declining marriage rate among the young, and we have, you know, sort of segregation by age where old people are kind of put off or put themselves off so they won't be a burden on their families. All of this is is kind of true in our society, but it's so exaggerated in Hollywood and in, in our entertainment. You will never see a grandmother unless she's a, a hideous witch or she's on her deathbed and leaving somebody a lot of money. And you'll never see an older man, a grandfatherly man, unless he's the villain of the piece. Why not? Because our society doesn't like to think about age or death, uh, or, and I would add, family or duty or responsibility. You know, it's entertainment. Everybody wants to be free, single, and sexy. And there's a huge emphasis on that side of life. But now we also have this kind of obsession with the, with, with the dark side and hideous crimes and um, the failure of sex relations and, you know, the horrible dark secrets that all these pleasant-seeming people and pleasant-seeming communities, they all have these horrible dark secrets. That's, you know, that's the, that's the other side of it. What you never see is just normality. You almost never see a mixture of the good and the bad as we actually experience it in our society. When we turn to TV, it's not so bad, right? Well, I have a section in the article about reality TV, which I think is, <laughs> that's what happened to TV, um, because reality TV is cheaper to produce. And, and you, you attribute that to the advent of VCR and, and cable, right? Yeah, the networks could not could no longer afford the networks could no longer afford to produce half-hour comedies and, and hour-long dramas the way they had been doing. There simply wasn't the revenue because the audience was bleeding away to cable and and VCRs and so forth. That was a long time ago, but that is the origin of the talk shows, the reality shows, and all the kind of things. That um, you don't have to pay those uh, those 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 figures on the screen, you know, celebrity wages. No, that's right. And that I think that sensibility, actually, I think that sensibility. Some I like some reality shows like talent contests, cooking shows. There, that's fine. Even truck drivers. That's that's fine. It's the it's the kind of voyeuristic ones about you know this celebrity and his weird lifestyle and his weird family or these poor, overweight slobs who just can't get it together uh, and we're just going to sort of go in and stare at them, or these stupid, mindless, self-indulgent, rich people like the Kardashians and that kind of stuff. It's all this kind of, let's look at other people and how messed up they are. And actually, I think people like that because it makes them feel better about themselves. But it's all very kind of degrading. But but there's another side of TV. You quote uh, from 1995, that was 25 years ago, uh, Charles McGrath, who said that uh, the New York Times literary editor, quote, 
uh, TV is actually enjoying a sort of golden age. What was he referring to? Well, he was referring to, um, I'm not sure exactly what he had in mind, but at that time he was probably referring to the, the what were called the, um, well, the miniseries and the, the, the kind of self-contained short programs that would go over a series of nights um, and be successful. You know, in the 90s, well, he was writing before The Sopranos came along, but there had been shows like Roots and Lonesome Dove. But there were, you know, these limited series are important because they end. <laughs> um, they, you know, to quote the literary critic Frank Kermode, uh, they have a sense of an ending. And the more I think about this, the more I've written about this, the more I think it's really important that this kind of storytelling have an ending because you can go back to Aristotle and you can talk about the plot of a, of a tragedy or the plot of a drama. It's all about uh, the action. It's all, meaning the decisions that people make, meaning the morality and the fundamental choices that human beings make. That's the essence of the drama. And if you, so you have a decision, you have a person making a decision, you have the consequences of the decision, and you have some sort of outcome. I'm not saying this has to be a moralistic tale with a happy ending and so forth. It's, that's the sim, simple-minded version. But on a more complex level, we tell each other stories because we wish to um, make some kind of coherent sense out of life. And I think that's so deeply embedded in storytelling that the best TV series, and they're all kinds, you know, they're all different varieties. It's evolved over the years. The best ones knew when they started that they were going to come to an end. And the ones that kind of went off the rails and just got sort of worse and worse as they went along were the ones who kept getting renewed and saying, oh, we have an audience, you know, the advertisers want us to come up with another season and another season and another season. And the extreme example of that is the daytime soap opera, uh, something like Guiding Light, which began, if I'm not mistaken, in 1930, and I think ended like last year or something. <laughs> and, you know, a daytime soap opera, the stories just become so ridiculously convoluted and more and more perverse and weird and kinky. Anything to keep people watching. Yeah. No, no, you need... You you need you you do you need that that termination. I remember one of the one of the, my favorite series is The Fugitive from the '60s, that I, I showed my son. We we went through every episode, and there was certainly a sense of an ending, which is going to be when he discovers his wife's murderer, and and catches him, and they I think they understood this is only going to work for a few years. We we can't run this out, and and I think it I think it was four years. The series ended with that final episode, which I believe was the most watched TV program in, in history up until that point in the 67 or, or, or 68 or, or something. But yeah, the putting that, putting that end point uh, after a certain, if it's not there, uh, then you just, yeah, it, it becomes, it does become ridiculous. Let me, let me get a, a final question here, Martha. You say that Without some kind of regulation of media competition, we quickly end up in, you say, a race to the bottom. Now, 
what kind of regulation can 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 halt that race to the bottom there are there's two two sides to that question the first is the principled side and the second is the practical side um i'll start with the practical side the practical side is that <clears throat> regulating um what's on the internet is proving to be a great challenge in the west um and in the united states we think the europeans are going too far they think we're too libertarian about it <clears throat> and if you really want to do it if you really want to control the internet you can do it just ask china and they'll teach you how it can be controlled but the lengths to which one has to go to control it are so uh, intimidating and horrific that we really don't know quite what to do <clears throat> but then the principled side in the american tradition is that the production companies those who uh produce these programs which are not the tech companies except you know netflix is this kind of hybrid so there's this weird companies that used to be aggregators of other people's produ productions now are beginning to produce their own netflix being the prime example um although it didn't win at the globe golden globes the way people thought it would Netflix is now producing a lot of original content but unlike the old movie studios unlike the television networks there's no um self regulation in Netflix it it dep the practical question depends a lot on the medium that you're talking about in the broadcast realm radio and television there was and is the FCC which has its own uh set of standards about what can and cannot be on the air. For example, four-letter profanity. If I start using four-letter words, uh it probably get into your podcast. Um if it doesn't get into your podcast, it would be because you decided not to put it in. The, the FCC has no no regulatory power over your podcast, but it does over commercial radio and commercial TV. So, there's that So what the networks have always done from the beginning is regulate themselves to keep the government at arm's length. The networks have their departments of standards and practices, and it's that little department within the network that says you cannot use the F word on CBS. You cannot use the F word on NBC. Now, obviously you can use the F word on cable, and you can use the F word on the internet, heaven knows. So that form of regulation is is limited to broadcast. <clears throat> the film industry has a whole different history where uh legally film was not protected by the first amendment until really the 60s. Uh it was considered a commodity based on a 1915 uh court case. Mutual versus um I forget the other the I can't, I can't remember the name of the case. <clears throat> um Ohio uh, I'm sorry you can have to cut that part it was based on a 1915 court case uh that declared film to be a commercial product not a form of expression over the years that changed by the late 60s film had won all of its first amendment protections but in the whole course of that the film studios regulated themselves um that's what the Hayes office was all about the production code that was an agreement among the film studios to monitor their own content so when the 60s came along with the court cases that said they really basically the government couldn't censor them anymore uh 
then you've got the rating system, which we still have, which is sort of dysfunctional, obviously, because people watch films in all sorts of ways other than going to a movie theater. So there's been a kind of a regulatory regime in the United States with all of, all of our media. Its focus has been the company will we'll take care of it. You government, you stay away. We'll handle it. We kind of know what you want, but we're going to regulate it ourselves. We don't want the state to do it. That's basically our tradition in our media. How that will apply to the Internet um, is very unclear at the moment. And so it doesn't really apply to all of these streaming services. You know, some of they all, it just is, a, it's a real uh, legal gray area. And so a lot of it just depends on what the market will bear. And that's the other part of my argument is that the market seems to be willing to bear almost anything these days. So it's very unclear how, how this can be regulated. America has a tradition of of kind of voluntary self-regulation, voluntary self-restraint, uh, according to social norms, according to accepted social norms. The closest thing we have to that now, I'm sorry to say, is political correctness. There just are a lot of things you can't say, even though it's legal to say them. You can't say it because you will uh, you will draw lightning and thunder down upon your head. Well, I, I and, and you know, political correctness often has a very strong political orientation, but I, I also think that it's attributed to a broadly apolitical, universal human need to have some kind of restraint on on what other people can say and do. <laughs> and, I, I think so. I, I agree. <clears throat> it's the moralism, it's the kind of censorious moralism of, of the left. And the right used to have its own desire to censor and be, and be moralistic, but the right seems to have misplaced that somewhere. Yeah, the, the libertarians, I think. Uh, and, and, you know, there's money to be made in, in the, you know, the obscenity, reality, awful things uh, that they're, they're, they're getting the market. So, but but um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like in, in 10 years. I... I'm hoping that people start to begin to feel an exhaustion. Maybe not even a moral response, but an emotional, uh, more F-words, more, uh, you know, more, more stupid sex scenes. I should say, just, just sort of a fatigue with the stupidity of, of it. Not even, the, you know, I don't know, well, I can, immorality, yes, but also just... I mean, I think the F word is, it's the, 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 the F word is the intellectually laziest word in the, in the English language at this point. It's just sort of this all-purpose word. It can be an intensifier. It can be an insult. It can be praise. It can be anything, which is to say that it is just a filler. It, it, uh, it's easy, and we, we've got we've to raise our own standards on our own expression. But... You know, I'm I, I'm an old guy, so. Here's here's a slightly different, uh, peculiar angle, which sounds a little bit odd, maybe coming from me. <clears throat> there is there is, and I I looked for this, and I did find it in many in in some ways. The pressures of foreign markets on the entertainment industry in the United States include moral pressures because there are a lot of countries in the world that do not like 
the extremes of sex and violence, profanity, and, and what they would consider blasphemy in American entertainment. There's a lot of people in the world who avoid it for that reason or who would denounce it. Unfortunately, most of those people are not the more affluent. So this pushback <clears throat> by people around the world who really don't like some of the degradation in our entertainment, the pushback tends to be among the more poor, uh, religious, socially uh, and religiously conservative populations. Um, it gets picked up, of course, by radical Islamists um, and by others who denounce our culture as hopelessly decadent and so forth. It's a tool in the hands of authoritarians who want to you know, denounce us as decadent and so forth. So it's a mixed bag. But to the extent that a market like China is still pretty puritanical, you will note that however however much you and I may dislike the Marvel comic universe, it does not contain very much explicit sex or really gory violence or celebrations of criminals winning as opposed to getting beaten in the end by the good guys. Um, it's, you know, Hollywood has been producing blockbuster entertainment that is basically clean and the good guys win all those kinds of old-fashioned things because they know that's the only way they can get into some of these huge markets overseas. So, you know, that's I don't consider that a good thing because, well, maybe it is a good thing in a perverse sort of a way, but it's a phenomenon that the really, you know, these big, huge blockbusters, with the exception maybe of the late, you know, the Batman ones that have Joker in it and so forth, they tend to be pretty... Uh, they're very violent, but they're not gory, and they're not—they're not very sexy. There's very little sex and very little nudity. It's a rather striking fact that Hollywood is so eager to get into those markets that it just doesn't trade in in its usual, the, the usual coin of the realm. Well, we'll we're we're going to see in uh, we're going to see in ten years. Martha Bayless, thank you very much for joining us. We'll have you on again. My pleasure. Thank you.